Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm a home decor overspender. Hi, Joe. I made a breakthrough. I found HomeSense. It's unreal. So many brand name sofas. I bought one. Oh, wow, really? It's okay. Yeah. The prices so low. Lighting unexpected. Rugs handcrafted. Wall art eclectic. I go back like every week. <gasps> no, it's always different. New unique decor. Same great savings every time you go. Field trip. HomeSense. Standout pieces. Outstanding prices. We're going to learn a piece from Rab Chaim, which relates to Hilchos Machalos Asuros. This does not appear in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, but it's a very important fundamental conceptual point nonetheless, and it's in very reliable sources. So we'll learn it as a supplement to the pieces that we learned in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, Hilchos Machalos Asuros. The Rambam in Perak Dalit of Hilchos Machalos Asuros differentiates between two types of animal which are prohibited to be eaten. One is an Avela, which means that it died without being shechted. And the halacha is that the animal is not allowed to be eaten. And in addition to that, there's tuma; It creates impurity if somebody touches it. And the second category, the Rambam tells us, is called a trefa. And the Torah references this also, that basar basada trefa la kelef tashlichun oso, that if the meat comes from a trefa, it has to be thrown to a dog. And the trefa means that it was attacked, it has an injury, which is going to lead it to die. But, says the Rambam, the trefa does have shrita, because if it would die on its own, that's the same as an avela. So the trefa is an animal which is going to die from its injuries, but in the meantime, the person shechted it, so it has shechita. So the halacha is that it's prohibited to be eaten. It's still not kosher, but it does not cause tumah. There is no impurity from touching it. So that's the distinction between an avela and a trefa. Now, the simple way to understand this is that a trefa has a proper shechita, so it's considered a regular shechted animal, and with regards to the shechita, it's kosher, but it has a separate problem, an external problem, unrelated to the shechita, which is that it was injured, and therefore it's prohibited to be eaten. Similar to, let's say, a piece of meat was shechted properly and prepared properly, it's a kosher piece of meat, and then it gets mixed with milk, so it's basar v'chalav, so it's prohibited to be eaten, but the prohibition is unrelated to the shechita. The shechita was fine, but it's still not kosher. So the the simple understanding is that the trefa would also be a fine shechita, but the animal is not kosher for an external reason. But Rab Chaim is quoted in a number of places as saying that the understanding of this is differently. Uh, his son Reb Velvel in the back of Chidushim Aron Riz Halevi in a letter to Reb Chatzkal Abramski and also in his Chidushim on Shas and Maseches Zvachim on Samach Tes Amid Aleph and on Kuv Gimel Amid Beis. And a bunch of these sources and variations of this idea are quoted, collected together in Chidusha Grach Al Hashas and Chulindaf Yud Gimel Amud Aleph. So Rab Chaim's idea was that the trefa is actually the same status as an avela. The shechita that's given to a trefa is ineffective, it doesn't work, and therefore the trefa is an animal which dies without shechita, which is the same as the nevela. So the problem with the trefa is not external to the shechita, like if milk gets mixed with the meat, but it's internal, it's inherent to the shechita. Once an animal becomes a trefa and it's going to die anyways, 
any shechita done on it is invalid. It's ineffective, and the animal dying afterwards is as if it died without a shechita. Now, we mentioned before that a trefa does not create tumah the way a nevela does. So this brings us to an unusual idea, which is that the shechita on a trefa, even though it's irrelevant to the laws of kosher, it is a valid shechita in the laws of Tumah. So there's a very unusual type of shechita which goes on here, which removes the animal from the category of Tumah, even though it's ineffective in making the animals meet kosher. So that's Rab Chaim's understanding of the trefa status. Now, Rab Chaim has a few proofs to this idea. We'll just mention two of the ones from the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchus Machos Asuras Parak Dalit Halacha Yud Zayin writes that we can combine a half a kazayis of a nevela and a half a kazayis of a trefa in order to punish the person for eating the kazayis measurement, the olive size measurement, which is necessary in order to be punished. And this, the Rambam points out, is different. Usually we don't combine two different isurim half a kazais from one with half a kazais from the other in order to create the measurement for punishment. But nivela and trefa are an exception where we are able to combine half a size from one and half a size from the other in order to punish the person. And the Rambam explains, Hoil vehatrefa trilas nevelahi, because the trefa is the beginning of becoming a nevela. So Reb Velvel points out that that seems to be like Reb Chaim's understanding that trefa and nevela are fundamentally connected. They're not two different types of isurim. One has shechita and one doesn't, but they're both a lack of a proper shechita. And Rab Chaim's second proof, his main proof, is from the Rambam in Hilchos Avos Hatumos Perak Beis Halacha Yud. The Rambam says that if a non-Jew shechted an animal, it has the status of an avela, and anyone that touches it gets tame, same as an avela. But says the Rambam, the Karo Beinai Shav Zemidivrei Sofrim, that he thinks this is only midra banan this tuma, because really the shechita of a non-Jew, according to the Rambam, does get rid of the tuma. But they added a shechita in order to distance non-Jews from shechting because of concerns of shechting tavodazara. Now the Rambam continues and he says, It's usher midoraisa to eat an animal which was shechted by a non-Jew. So why should it not have tuma? Once we see that the Torah said that the shechita of a non-Jew doesn't work, then it should also be tame. Says the Rambam, The Rambam says it doesn't follow that because something is usher to be eaten, it also creates tuma because. Because a trefa is usher to be eaten, but it's still tahor. It does not have tuma. So the Rambam compares just as a trefa. There's a difference between the laws of kosher and the laws of tuma. It's trefa to eat, but it's still tahor. So too, the shechting of a non-Jew is the same status. It's trefa. It's usher to be eaten, mido raisa, but it's still tahor. So that's the Rambam's argument. Now, the Ravid is very unhappy with this. He has a very sharp critique of the Rambam, and he basically says that a non-Jew's shechita is nothing in halacha, so it would be the same exact thing as an avela, and it would be not kosher, and tameh, both midah raisa. So there's a machlokus between the Rambam and the Ravid. Uh, the Ravid holds that if a non-Jew shechts it, it's the same exact thing as an avela, it's not kosher, and it's tameh, both midah raisa. The Rambam holds that it, 
practically is like an Avela. It's not kosher and it creates Tumah, but that Tumah is only Midrabanan. On a Doraisa level, the Shechita of a non-Jew creates the equivalent status of a Trefa. Now, Reb Chaim pointed out that from the Rambam's comparing the Shechita of a non-Jew, which is certainly an invalid Shechita, with the Trefa, so it's apparent that the Rambam holds that the shechita of a trefa is also ineffective. Because if we say, like the conventional understanding, that the trefa has a valid shechita, it's just prohibited to be eaten for a different reason, like basar v'chalav, if there's an external reason, nothing to do with the shechita, then there would be no reason to derive from a trefa to the shechita of a non-Jew, which is an invalid shechita. So the Rambam would have no proof that with an invalid shechita it could still remove the Tumah. Rather, said Rab Chaim, it's apparent in this Rambam that he holds that the Shechita of a Trefa is inherently ineffective. It does not do anything to make this food kosher. And still it removes the Tumah. So that's what the Rambam derives also in the case of a non-Jew that shechts, that even though it has no relevancy to making it kosher, it's totally invalid for eating it, still it removes the Tumah. So this unusual idea of a shechita, which only helps to remove Tumah, it does not make the food kosher at all. The Rambam says that we derive that from Trefa and also applies to the shechita of a non-Jew. So that's Rab Chaim's explanation as to how the status of Trefa works. And a number of other achronim contemporaries of Rab Chaim also take this approach. Rab Chaim Ozer in the Chuvas Achiezer in Yoridea Simen Vav Os Hey. And more fully in Simen Zayin Os Zayin also develops the same approach based on that Rambam in Hilchos Macholos Asuros that says that Trefa is the beginning of Nevela. Also, the same approach is in Reb Moshe Sokolovsky, who is a Rosh Hashiva in Brisk, in his Imre Moshe in Simon Dalid, Os Lamed Beis. And also Reb Elchanan Wasserman in his Shiurim that were published on Chulin in Simon Beis also develops this idea and talks about how it's possible to have a Shechita, which is only relevant with regards to Tumah, but not with regards to Kashrus. So all of these were Talmidim or colleagues of Reb Chaim. Uh, all of them developed the same idea, but they don't quote it from Reb Chaim. So this was something that was floating around. But the, as we said, Reb Chaim's son, Reb Velvel, does quote it in the name of his father. Now, a variant way to say this would be that in a Nevela, there are two separate Isurim that are unrelated. One is that it's treif, it's prohibited to be eaten, and the second is that it also creates Tumah. But with regard to Trefa, the Shechita is effective that there's no longer a Tumah. So this idea could also be traced back to the Nevela that the Tumah doesn't necessarily follow from the fact that it's prohibited to be eaten. But rather, they're two distinct outcomes of being a Nevela. Now, the one who discusses this issue the most is uh, someone totally out of Reb Chaim's circles, and that is Reb Yosef Engel in the Asman Raisa in Klal Tes Zayin. He talks about this issue at length, and he concludes the same as Reb Chaim, that the problem with the Trefa is not external to the Shechita, but the Shechita itself is invalid. And he goes on at length, as is his way, and he quotes many proofs for this. Now, in Os Yud Aleph, he quotes the Rambam that we mentioned in Machalos Asuros, where the Rambam says that Nevela and Trefa can be combined for a Kazayas, 
because the trefa is the beginning of the nevela. And he also uses this as a proof for this idea that the shechita of the trefa is invalid. So it says, if there was no shechita. But he also mentions that there's another way to read this Rambam, which would not be along the lines of Rab Chaim's approach. And that is just practically that since the trefa animal is injured in a way which is going to lead to its death, so therefore practically it's in the same category as a nevela. Not that the prohibition is the same or both of them are a fundamental lack of a shechita, but just practically a trefa is similar to a nevela because it is going to die. And in the new Asmando Raisas with the commentary of the Asek Asvas on the bottom, so he quotes that this reading of the Rambam is the one that the Tzemach Tzedek from the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Yoradea Simen Aleph Os Hey adopts. And he says that when the Rambam says that the trefa is the beginning of a nevela, Ratzalomar Kevin Shetrefa Einachayev Esofalomus Velihios Nevela. It just means simply because the trefa is not going to live, it is going to die and become a nevela. So that's the connection the Rambam is making not this more fundamental and conceptual idea that Rab Chaim has that the trefa shechita is invalid the same as the nevela. And he quotes also that the Rambam himself in the Mora Nevuchim in Chelek Gimel chapter Memches, he writes, So he quotes this same idea, but he adds in the word that it's known. So the implication is that it's not a halachic concept, but just a practical concept that would be evident to anyone looking around that a trefa is related to a nevela in the sense that it's going to die. Now, one proof that Rabbi Yosef Engel has, this is probably the simplest proof, is from the Mishnah in Chulin on Ein Beis and Beis and Zvachim on Samach Tesam and Beis. The language of the Mishnah is trefa shchitasa mitaheres trefasa mitum asa. So this phrase seems to say very clearly that the shchita is effective in making tahara, but it has nothing to do with whether or not it's kosher. So that would seem to be the simplest proof maybe for this whole idea that there's a shechita which only is effective with regard to tuma, because the language of the Mishnah seems to say that somewhat clearly, that the shechita is only effective for tahara, even though the food is still not kosher at all. Now, just to end this topic with some cute little historical traditions. Rav Herschel Schechter in Divrei HaRav on page 188 uh, quotes a tradition that he heard from Rav Chaim's grandson, Rav Yosef Dov Salavechik, that this concept, this Chiddush, was actually Rav Chaim's bar mitzvah drasha. His father, the Beis HaLevi, hadn't prepared something for him. He just said, tell us a Chiddush. And this was what Rab Chaim shared at the time. So obviously a very impressive chiddush for a 13-year-old boy. And it was the omen of the level of learning that Rab Chaim would eventually achieve. He also quotes a story here that he heard in the name of Rabbi Chil Michal Charlap about the relationship between Rab Chaim and Rabbi Yosef Engel. He says there's a number of ideas that are traced to Rab Chaim that also are in Rabbi Yosef Engel's farm. So he tells a story that uh, in Israel they sent out a mesholach to go collect money and he went to Brisk and he spoke and learning a little bit with Rab Chaim and Rab Chaim told him one of his new chidushim and then he went to Krakow where Rabbi Yosef Engel was a rav and he spoke to him also and Rabbi Yosef Engel said the same idea as Rab Chaim but he offered many many more proofs for the idea than Rab Chaim had so the mesholach came back to Brisk and he came again to Rab Chaim and he told him that he had spoke to Rab Yosef Engel and that Rab Yosef Engel had many more proofs for it than he did. 
uh, Rab Chaim took out a notebook and he showed him where he had written all of those proofs plus many more. So when the Mishulach came back to Israel, he told people that he met these two great Gaonim. And they're both tremendous Talmidei Chachamim, but Rabbi Yosef Engel is more impressive when you speak to him in learning, and Rabbi Chaim is more impressive when you read what he wrote in his Torah notebooks. So it's just a cute story, and it points to the, some of the similarities between Rabbi Chaim and Rabbi Yosef Engel, who are two very different sorts, but in the way they learn, sometimes they came across the same ideas. And finally, one last point, which we'll put in this recording, even though it's not directly relevant to the topic we're discussing, but it relates to the fact that this Chiddush was preserved in Rab Chaim's son, in Rab Velvel's writings. So that brings up a very fascinating topic. This comes from Rab Steinman, who was a native of Brisk, and he was very close with Rab Velvel, and he had a lot of traditions from Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel and other great Brisker figures. So in his Sefer on Chumash Dayalas HaShachar and Parshas Kedoshim on the mitzvah of honoring parents, he notes that Rab Chaim never quotes his father, the Beis HaLevi, he never quotes any Torah from his father, whereas Rab Velvel does quote from his father, Rab Chaim, and he also quotes from the Beis HaLevi, and he, he adds, he builds on their Chidushim. So Rab Steinman seems to imply that this reflects a difference in Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel's understanding of the mitzvah of honoring parents. Rab Chaim was afraid that if he dared to disagree with his father in learning at all, that would be a violation of the commandment to honor his father. It would be disrespectful towards the Beis HaLevi. So that's why he doesn't deal at all with the Beis HaLevi's Torah. Whereas Rab Velvel held that quoting your father and adding to his learning is acceptable. You just shouldn't disagree with them. So that accounts for the difference between Rab Chaim's approach and Rab Velvel's, why Rab Chaim never quotes his father at all, and Rab Velvel does quote his father and grandfather and adds to it. Now there's another book called Eleb Tamar, which is based on Rab Steinman's traditions with the Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel. And there, there's a long section beginning on page 32, which expands on this theory. And he goes into uh, very important ideas about Kibbut Avaim. He begins that Rav Steinman said that all of the Gdolim, all great people, merited what they did because they had Kibbut Avaim. And he quotes that Rav Chaim Brisker had an unbelievable, indescribable honor for his father, the Beis Halevi. And he says the Chazonish also had tremendous honor for his parents. And finally, he cites the example of the Chafetz Chaim who married his stepsister because his stepfather wanted him to marry her and he wanted his mother to be happy in her marriage even though she was almost 10 years older than him. And that marriage worked out. The Chafetz Chaim had a nice family from her. So those examples of the Chafetz Chaim, the Chazonish and Rab Chaim are examples of people who became great and who had tremendous kibbut avaim. So he associates that the two go together. And then he quotes a bit more expansively this tradition that Rab Chaim doesn't deal with anything his father wrote in the Beis HaLevi because he was so afraid of contradicting him in learning and violating the mitzvah of Kibbut Avaim, disrespecting his father. So that accounts for why he never quotes him. And he quotes that also in the Sefer Azikaron Zohar LeDavid in Chelek Bey's page 322 that it quotes the same theory from Rab Shach to explain why Rab Chaim never quotes the Beis HaLevi in his writings. And again, Rab Velvel had a bit of a different approach, so he does quote Rab Chaim and the Beis HaLevi, and he builds on what they said. And in this regard, he quotes a strange tradition 
that the Rav Steinman said that Rav Chaim never hit the brisker Rav. He never hit his son, Rav Velvel. Except one time when Rav Velvel was a child, he said a Chiddush, which was against his grandfather, his mother's father, Rav Rafal Shapiro, and Rav Chaim hit him then because he was so upset that how dare he contradict something that his grandfather had said in learning. So Rav Velvel learned from that that he can never disagree with his father or his grandfather. And a somewhat related tradition is that he says Rab Chaim didn't used to sign his name, the son of the great Gaon, the Beis Halevi, even though Rab Velvel did used to write the son of my father and master and teacher, Rab Chaim. So he explains because Rab Chaim didn't want to mention his father's name the first year after the Beis Halevi had died, because he didn't want to have to say, Hareni Kaparas Mishkavo, that I'm his atonement which is what a child is supposed to say the first year after their parent passes away. So Rab Chaim didn't want to say that because it sounds negative, like he's taking his father's punishments on himself. So from then on, Rab Chaim wouldn't really mention his father because he didn't want it to be noticeable that he had stopped mentioning him for the year after he passed away. So that's why he doesn't usually use his father's name in his signature. Whereas Rab Velvel does sign his name with his father's name. So it's a little bit of an unusual or strange tradition, but uh, it gives us insight into how careful and thoughtful the brisker great figures were with every slight action that they did. Now there's a related story on page 51, again these are just interesting stories, that when they were printing Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi on the Rambam, so they weren't sure whether to include Rab Chaim's father, the Beis Halevi's name, on the title page. So Rab Chaim's son, Rab Velvel, said to check the book Sfas Emes and to see if they put his father's name on the title page because the Hasidim really know how to honor someone properly. So they checked the Sfas Emes and they saw that it just said the author's name, not the father's name. So that's what they did also with the book Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, that they omitted the Beis HaLevi's name. And then he quotes from the Sefer Azikaron, Zachar LeDavid again, that he has a different tradition of this, that they asked Rab Simcha Zelig, and he said that they should omit Rab Chaim's father's name. So some of these stories are a bit odd, but they're interesting nonetheless. Now, Rav Steinman ends off that section by just pointing out that the flip side, the Beis HaLevi, does quote Rab Chaim in a number of places in his tshuvas, and usually he just says, my son Sheyichya, that he should live, but with one exception, at the beginning of Chelek Gimel, the first tshuva, Simon Aleph, he gives him a much bigger honorific, Moreno Verabeinu Harav, he gives him all sorts of titles, and he alludes that there's some story as to why he did that. Now, just to end this whole discussion off with Rav Steinman's own personal views. So on page 55, he quotes a story that they were putting out a new edition of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi on the Rambam, and they were putting together the critiques of later Achronim. I assume this is a reference to the Or Olam edition, which we've been using extensively throughout. Anyways, they asked Rav Steinman to participate, and he declined. He was uncomfortable with it. And he has this grand statement that Rav Chaim is the father of all yeshivas now days, everything we have comes from him, and it would be disrespectful to just print a version of Rab Chaim where everyone is critiquing and asking questions on him. And then the author has a note at the end that when they showed him the final 
addition of what came out. So Rav Shaiman said that it's actually not that bad. It's okay because it's not just one question after the next on Rav Chaim, but it's rather discussion about the topics that he discussed. And sure enough, Rav Steinman is not quoted in the Or Olam edition. So it's probably that edition, but at the end of the day, it sounds like he was okay with it. So we can keep using it without problem. But this whole topic was obviously a sensitive one for Rav Steinman because it also quotes on page 105 that he did not like to give shiurim where he would explicitly disagree with Rav Velvel or with the stipler because he thought that it might be disrespectful to disagree with them. And when he wrote his svarim, Dayal Sashachar and Babakama, he had a bunch of questions on Rav Velvel's chiddush in that, which is printed in Chidushim Aron Riz HaLevi on Babakama on Daf Beis at the beginning. And Rav Steinman had a whole thing written disputing the Briskarov's approach. And he says also in Zvachim on Stamalishma, he also had a bunch of questions, but he did not want to print them explicitly, so he sort of divided it up and put some of the ideas ideas in the Sfarim, but he didn't want to go explicitly against the Briskarov. So that's a, an unusual way of looking at it. Most people say that it's respectful to deal with the person's learning, even if you disagree with them. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a, an explicit shuva that you can disagree with the Chazon Ish in Bnei Brak because it's respectful to learn the person's writings and disagree with them. That's the way of Torah learning. But obviously, Rav Steinman had a little bit of a different view of this, and it might be on some level based on what he saw from Rav Chaim not wanting to disagree with his father. Either way, the lesson for us is the tremendous kiburava aim that Rav Chaim showed, and that's something that all of us can emulate. Weight loss starts with the mind, and nobody knows this better than Martha Cameron, who lost 20 pounds on Noom Weight. Yeah, I lost 20 pounds and kept it off. So Martha, why did Noom Weight work so well for you? Well, Noom was just a really positive weight loss experience for me, and compared to other weight loss programs, they gave me the freedom and flexibility to keep eating what I loved, and that made all the difference in the world because it made me actually enjoy the process. You know what I mean? Oh, we know, Martha. (laughs) Learn how Noom's psychological approach can help you lose weight at Noom.com.